Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, if you have a Bible, please open it with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to be reading verses 18 to 22. And one of the things that I like to do uh, when we read God's Word together is we're going to, like, take this habit that the, oli- the early church did. So I'm going to read this passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and you all can respond, thanks be to God. And I don't mean to, like, create a competitive edge here, but the early service really kind of blew me back. So <laughs> you do with that info what you will. But 1 Peter, chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Here we go. Oh, and I'm so sorry. Wait, if you are a child, kindergarten to fifth grade, please be dismissed. I am so sorry. I was just ready to go. Just like you were ready to go. All right. 1 Peter, chapter 3. Here we go. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's invite him into our time and ask for his help. Father, thank you for your word, that it's alive, that it's powerful, that it's trustworthy. God, I pray that you would help the messenger get out of the way and the message would be clear this morning. That this is an invitation to abide. That everyone in this room would be moved by your spirit to move closer to you, to love you, to spend time with you, to dwell with you because of Jesus. God, I pray that we would learn to trust you in the midst of whatever we're going through. In Jesus' name, amen. Strange things are happening to me. Strange things, ain't no doubt about it. Randy Newman first sang those words in 1995 at the beginning of the hit film Toy Story. It was when uh, Woody's life was spiraling out of control because Buzz came in. But if ever there was a decade in U.S. history that could sing that song, or that song would be true for that decade, It'd be the 1970s, not the 1960s, not the 1980s, the 1970s. Strange things happened in the U.S. in the 1970s. As one writer notes, the 1960s were hopeful. We sent a man to the moon, civil rights legislation was passed, good things were happening. So while the 1960s were hopeful, the 1970s were sour. 
wild things started happening. For the first time in U.S. history, a sitting president resigned in scandal. Uh, inflation was on the rise. Their gas prices were so expensive that there were just lines around city blocks of people waiting to buy gas. The bomb, as in like a bomb, became a major component of political expression. People started blowing each other up. Uh, in, t- in 1974, over 2,044 bombs were set off across this country. 2,044. 24 people died. These were strange times. If you're in the middle of that, that's incredibly disorienting. And there's actually, though, if there's, there's a picture that captures this strangeness, that captures just how disorienting this time was. And if there's a picture that can capture it, it's this picture right here. Now, for those of you who don't know, this is Patty Hearst holding a machine gun in front of the flag of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Like, I've never heard of the Symbionese. Where's Symbionese? It's not a country. These were uh, radical Marxist hippies who were extremely violent, uh, and Patty Hearst had joined them. This would be the equivalent today of a Kardashian joining ISIS. This would have been wild. This would have been totally confusing. However, though, this is not the like, sole source of the confusion in this picture. This picture is confusing. This young socialite, her grandfather was William Randolph Hearst. She had everything she could ever want. Uh, William Randolph Hearst, as you may remember, he's the guy that the great Gatsby is based off of. I mean, she just had everything she wanted. Why is she joining these wild radicals? That's confusing. But what's really confusing is that one night, Patty Hearst was minding her own business. By all accounts, she was in her apartment with her boyfriend when there was a knock on the door. They opened it, and three armed people kicked in the door and kidnapped Patty Hearst. This was the Symbionese Liberation Army. That's how she met these people. They took her, and by all accounts, she had no idea. She wasn't in on it. She was totally an innocent person, minding her own business, got kidnapped. And now she's joined them. Not only has she joined them, she became the public face of this group. That's not how kidnappings typically work. These are strange times. And that's exactly the setting that Peter is writing to in the passage that we just read. Strange things are happening to his readers. Peter is writing to a group of people who live throughout the Roman Empire. They're Gentiles, they're Greeks, they're, they're Romans, and they're living among their neighbors. They've met Jesus, they've come to Christ. As we learned earlier in chapter 3, they're seeking to be a blessing in their neighborhoods. They're trying to, to live for the flourishing of others. They're trying to like be a blessing to their neighbors. And how is that met? It's met with hostility. They're pushed out to the fringes. And so the way Peter is speaking to these people, he's speaking to people who are disoriented, people who are confused, people who don't know what's going on. They've been brought to the end of themselves. And what Peter says is so crucial. What do you do when you don't know what to do? So many of us are boxer the horse. George Orwell, uh, in his classic Animal Farm, which you pretended to read in, I think, 10th grade, tells the story of all these animals, and there's Boxer the horse. And whenever Boxer the horse encounters something, some trouble, some adversity, something he doesn't know what to do, he has a mantra. Work harder. 
Keep your head down and work. Just work harder. And I hate to spoil the book, but it doesn't turn out well for Boxer. And some of you, that's how you face suffering. Don't know what to do, so I'll just work harder. What does Peter say? Does he dangle a carrot out in front of you? Yeah, yeah, here's the target. Work harder for this. If you just did this, your suffering would go away. No. He meets people where they are with the gospel. He meets them where they are. And this is what he's communicating. It's so important for us, and it was important for this original audience. He's saying this. The gospel meets you where you are in that fear, in that disorientation, in that confusion. And it walks with you from fear toward hope. The gospel doesn't say, hey, uh, go outside the tent, get yourself put together, and then come back. Then we'll, then we'll play ball. The gospel meets us where we are and walks with us from fear to hope. And it does this in three ways. First, the gospel says you are not alone in your suffering. You are not alone in your suffering. Then it moves past that and it gives us assurance in our suffering. You won't be abandoned as you suffer. And then it helps point us to a future where we will one day be freed from suffering. The gospel helps you re-narrate your suffering. You are interpreting what's happening to you, and the gospel, Peter, in this passage, is providing an outside voice that says something is happening that you cannot see. Let's look at that together. Let's first see how the gospel says you're not alone in your suffering. Look with me at verse 18. This is verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. There is tremendous freedom in those words. There is hope in those words, and there is freedom in those words. Here's what Peter is saying. You're suffering. Life is hard. Things are spinning out of control. Christ also suffered. Your suffering Christ also suffered. That little word also brings tremendous meaning to your suffering. Christ went through it too. Your suffering links you together very closely with Jesus. He's working not to tell them to do something, but he's working to help them understand their identity. Suffering brings you to the end of yourself. Suffering is difficult. Sometimes in suffering, you're suffering and you don't have answers. Sometimes you're like, I don't even actually know what questions to ask. And churches all throughout America, we have done people a disservice. We have said, we have tried to be positive. We've tried to be, you know, helpful and encouraging. And so when people suffer, they come to church and they feel like, oh, I, there's something wrong with me. I, all these people have it together. And if I, th- they ask me how I'm doing, if I share with them that there's something maybe not totally 100% positive and happy and easy to put on a, on a bumper sticker, they're just going to shoot answers at me. And so here's what Peter's saying. Christ also suffered. In your suffering, you are closely linked to and experiencing what Jesus experienced. And this is grace. 
Like, this is grace on display in the midst of our suffering. And sometimes when we talk about grace, that makes us uncomfortable because the image that we have of God doesn't really work well with what we think grace is. So listen to what Peter says as he's talking to these people. Christ suffered for sin. That's really weird, right? Like, I'm suffering. Why are you talking about sin here? Look, Peter, like, we're pretty sophisticated people. This is a university town. Like, sin, wasn't sin that thing that, like, religious people used to just keep people behaving? Like, don't do that. That's sin. Like, come on. We need to move past that. And so some of us, we don't like to talk about sin. We don't quite see how sin fits in the picture. That certainly isn't what's going on here. Why would Peter talk about sin at this point with suffering people? He's trying to help them see they're not alone in their suffering and that God actually meets them where they are and deals with their deepest need. Their deepest need. See, we all know that we aren't living as we ought. Even though you're in church and your consciences are probably more sensitive and you're like making sure you don't let everyone know those movies you watched this week and you're like on your best behavior. Not that stuff. But there are th- we know we aren't as we are. We are not always our best selves. We are not always like this shining example that we're just flourishing and we're helping other people flourish and people love to be around us because we're just a joy. We know we're not that person. And so one of the things that can happen when you know you're not living up to a standard that you have is you can either just say like, well, I'm trying, I'm going to do my best, so I'll keep working. And grace is this thing that props me up to keep working, to keep trying, and I'll just, you know, do my best. And another way is to stand here and say, you have to accept me as I am. Yes, I'm grumpy, but grumpy is good. That's grace. And I demand acceptance from you. Peter blows both of those up and says where the, where the gospel meets you is actually more life-giving and way more hoping, hopeful than that. Here's what this verse says again. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? In order to bring you to God. Here's what he's saying. We are broken people. We rebel both by nature and by choice. No one is always their best self. And that that, that's where Jesus meets you and says, I'm going to bring you to God. I'm going to, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to bring you in. It's not fix yourself, then come in. It's not, oh, you're not really a mess. It's you are a mess and you're deeply loved. So loved that Jesus suffered for you. He's trying to say this. He's trying to say like, you are suffering right now, but here's your identity. You're one who's broken. You're one who's confused, but you're one who's deeply loved. So much so that Christ came and endured this terrible suffering that you're enduring. He put that on himself to bring you to God. This text is an invitation to abide because he's reminding you the whole point. The point of Christianity is not that you get your life straightened out, that you become a good person. The point is that you abide. What does it mean, as one writer says, to follow Jesus? It means that we abide with him. And Peter is saying, even in your suffering, you can abide. Why? Because you are deeply loved. That gives you a significant identity, but it also brings significance to your struggle. When he says Christ also suffered, he said Christ's suffering wasn't senseless. Yes, he was innocent, and he was suffering at the hands of unjust people, just like you are innocent, and you're suffering at the hands of unjust people, which is really important. We just need to take an aside to quickly talk about that. I think in America, in the age we live in, 
it's so very easy for Christians to have like a persecution like mindset. So like some Christians, they go to work, everybody knows I'm a Christian and I'm kind of a jerk. Oh, that's persecution. People didn't, they, they didn't respond well. It's because I'm a Christian. I'm being persecuted. Peter actually has a word for you. He says like, hey, if you suffer because you're doing evil or because you're a busybody, that's on you. It's chapter four. He's really saying, like, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who are seeking the flourishing of the city they live in, seeking the flourishing of their neighbors, and that's met with hostility and strangeness. Suffering righteous people who suffer at the hands of unjust people. And that doesn't just look like people taking your house. That happens. It looks like being made to live on the fringes. Being pushed out is a form of suffering. And Peter's saying, as disorienting as that is, God can use that experience because God was pushed out to the fringes and he rescued you. He brought you in. And so here's what Peter's saying. Catch the rhythm of this. He's saying Jesus suffered. He was pushed out to the fringes. And when he did, he brought you with him to God. And now he's saying to these people, you're suffering. You're being pushed out to the fringes. You can likewise bring others to God. You're going to treat people in a way that they don't even have a category for. When people are being unjust to you and you're saying, I'm going to seek your flourishing. I'm going to seek what's good for you. That's countercultural, And it's not, again, boxer the horse. I just got to love people. I just got to try. He's saying you've experienced this. You've been loved. That's why there's so many ways that Peter can describe the gospel. Christ died. The beautiful for the unbeautiful. God for lost people. But he says this, the righteous for the unrighteous. What's he doing there? He's being very specific and purposeful. He's trying to help people identify with the people who are causing them to suffer. Think about that. He's helping them identify with people who are causing them to suffer. He's saying Christ died, he was righteous, and he died for the unrighteous. You, that brought you to God. You're righteous, you're just minding your own business, and you're suffering that's to, the, that you are unrighteous just like your neighbors are. That totally changes your posture. That totally changes your posture. It's very difficult to be rude, pugnacious, a hothead, and a jerk when you realize, uh, back to someone who you realize you're just like them. The gospel changes our posture. You're not alone in your suffering. The suffering does something. It's changing you. And it's changing the people around you. Uh, Harvard Business Review put out this book called An Everyone Culture. And in that book, they estimate that uh, people, the way we work, we spend uh, a third to half of our time covering up and pretending we know what we're doing in our jobs. Where if we were just honest up front and said, oh yeah, I don't know that. Can I learn that? We spent that energy learning. uh, We would be far more productive. That idea that everyone culture bleeds into churches. We want to pretend we've got everything all together. We have answers and uh, we're, we're nailing it. We're rocking it. But if we had this posture of, yes, I'm suffering and I don't know why, that would completely change the way churches live and move and function, not just together. We would start loving each other differently, but it would also change the way we function in our workplaces in our schools. Peter's trying to help you see that you're not alone, and that's what makes you, you. Not only are you not alone, 
And you're not alone in your suffering. The gospel gives you tremendous assurance. The gospel gives you assurance. You can know that God won't abandon you in your suffering. You may feel alone. It may feel chaotic. But you can know that God won't abandon you in your suffering. That's in verse 21. And we have to read it slowly. Because if you just read it fast, it's confusing. But look at it with me. And this water symbolizes baptism that now also saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Now, take our breaths, and let's, let's, there's a famous hymn. Robert Lowry wrote this hymn, and he asked this question, okay? What can wash away my sins? Some of you are much better singers than me. You know how Peter would answer that question? What can wash away my sin? Not baptism. Okay? Not baptism. And in case you're confused, you're like, he just said baptism now saves you, Craig. Read with me again. Here's what he says. He says, not the removal of dirt from the body. Okay? Nobody... There's a lot of weird beliefs that have gone around the world in uh, this time period. I, don't, I have not found it. Maybe it existed. But nobody believed that you could be accepted by God and loved by God because of Lever 2000. Okay? People didn't believe, if I am clean, God loves me. All right? So when Peter says, not the removal of dirt, he's being poetic. Because when you get baptized, you get covered in water and dirt leaves you. He's not saying, oh, now the dirt's gone. You're, that's not what we're talking about. No, no. That same word, dirt, is used by James in James 1. And James says this, therefore, get rid of all moral filth. That's the word dirt. And evil, that's prevalent in you, and accept the implanted word. Here's what he's saying. Baptism saves you. It doesn't wash away your sin. Okay? We need to be clear on that. For thousands and thousands of years, Christians have bickered relentlessly about baptism. Should we dunk people? Should we sprinkle people? Should we spray people? Should we shoot people with a hose? Like, well, how do we do this? And we can have those conversations, and we need to have those conversations. There is one clear thing from this text, though. Baptism doesn't save you. You are not accepted by God because you are baptized. If someone tells you that, they're lying to you. That is not what Scripture teaches. Here's what Peter's talking about, and this is what he means when he says baptism saves you. The Bible loves images, all right? And water is a very powerful image in Scripture. So water symbolizes three things, okay? Decreation, chaos, and judgment. Decreation, chaos, and judgment. What do I mean by that? Think about the story of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness hovered over the surface of the deep. That's water, and that's chaos, and God says, let there be light. He brings order out of chaos. Think with me back to the flood. There's sin. There's brokenness. God brings water. He floods the earth, right? That's judgment. And then from the water, what comes out? New creation. So he decreates judgment. New creation comes out. Think about Israel. They leave Egypt. They come up to the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea. Their slaveholders are coming after them, and then they get drowned. Judgment. What comes after the water? A new people, people who are freed. Here's what Peter's saying. Jesus took on the chaos. Jesus jumped into the water, if you will. He died. 
and he came back out of it. And so you, right now, are suffering. You are in chaos. And just like Jesus came back out of that chaos, you're going to get out of this chaos. Here's what he, that's why he says this. Baptism saves you how? Through the resurrection of Jesus. Just like Jesus took on death and won, you are taking on death through this suffering, and you're going to get out of it. He will bring you out. What Peter is trying to do is he's trying to zoom the camera back. He's trying to help you see the big picture of your life. When you suffer, you only see the suffering. It's painful, it's chaotic, it's, all, it's in front of you all the time. And Peter's saying, that's real. But one day, you'll get out of it. And so baptism then, what does baptism do? It works to give you assurance. It's a symbol that serves to say, yes, I will get through this. Think about this with me. Think about this with me. I've sat in a ton of meetings about how are we going to reach the city? How are we going to, you know, disciple? How are we going to do all these things, right? I've heard a lot of strategies. Oh, we need to read these books. We need to watch these films. We need to, like, just get go where people are. We need to do all these things, right? You know what I haven't heard? We need to start baptizing people. I mean, no one, that's not an idea people throw on the table. It's weird. But think about this, though. Jesus, his parting words, he says this, go, therefore, into all the world, preach, the, you know, make disciples, baptizing them. Why does Jesus say that? Well, part of the reason you feel weird right now, and part of the reason I struggled with this text this week, is because we're Protestants. And as Protestants, we have a long history of seeing symbols be abused. We've seen people like, hey, it started out as like, I'm looking at this picture, and this picture helps me worship, and it creates this worshipful thing in me, to I'm worshiping the picture. We've seen symbols become, oh, I just do these rituals, and then the rituals start to save me. And so we're very, like, we have swung the pendulum way the other way and, like, even, like, kicked it a little bit to the other side. We're like, no symbols. We're uncomfortable with symbols. What Peter is saying is this. You're a real person. You live in a real physical world. And so God entered that world, and he wants you to have this experience so that you can look back on it and say, oh, yeah, God is faithful. It's a symbol. It says that right in the text. It's a symbol. It doesn't save you. Nobody, uh, because they were baptized, gets accepted by God because they were baptized. There are lots of people who are with Jesus, having died, who have not been baptized. What baptism does, though, is it works to give you a clean conscience. That's what he says. And is it a clean conscience because you're so awesome? No. It's a clean conscience because you know he's trustworthy. He died. He won. I went underwater, and I came back out. He'll get me through the suffering. I won't be abandoned. And like, you know, I'm just going to show my cards a little bit about how I think we should baptize people. I, I think people experience that because like I baptized somebody once, and I think they were quite nervous about my ability to bring them up out of the water. Like, I think they were just like, oh my gosh, what's happening? We live in that, oh my gosh. I mean, we prayed this morning. Mass shootings. This world's chaos. This world's broken. Sometimes that's all we see. But it will one day be over. And that's where he points us to next. You won't get abandoned in the chaos. He's with you in the chaos because he entered the chaos. Christ also suffered having 
died. And then we enter into a very odd, odd passage of Scripture. Martin Luther, speaking about this text, said this, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain what Peter means. I'm a young preacher. I'm not going to like play the arrogant card like, Luther, I got this, bro. Like, let me, let me help everybody know what this means. Um, Peter moves us from talking about suffering, and he pulls back the veil a little bit and makes a very odd statement. Here's what it says. After being made alive, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Um, in it, uh, a few people, that is eight, were saved through the water. What's Peter saying? Peter's saying Jesus died, and then the Spirit made him alive, and then the Spirit, God's Spirit, took him to a jail cell where he preached to these imprisoned spirits. What in the world is Peter doing? Well, I think to help us understand Peter, you need to know a little bit about Winston Churchill. So Winston Churchill certainly has a complicated and complex legacy. Um, but one of the things that no one disagrees about when they talk about Winston Churchill is his ability to turn a phrase. Winston Churchill was a, a speech writer par excellence. I mean, he just had crowds wrapped around his finger. It's estimated that uh, Churchill, for every minute he spoke, he would spend an hour working on that minute, refining that minute. One of the things he was famous for is he was going around England talking about the war effort. He would talk to Nazis. He would talk about, what you're doing is unjust, it's wrong, and we're coming to crush you. And he would, he would talk about how their, their doom is impending. That was a terrible Winston Churchill. I have no idea. Like, Sorry. Here was, here's what he was doing. Did he think any Nazis were listening? No. He was speaking to British people and trying to encourage them by letting them see some stuff going on behind the scenes. And that's exactly what Peter is doing. Peter pulls back the veil and says, hey, just in case you're wondering if you can really survive these strange times, mm-hmm. and I just have to admit, for me, this is an odd passage. I grew up in secular New England, and so like we all live in a secular world where when we tell people we believe in God, that seems almost unimaginable. Like, what? You really believe in God? Like, that there's a God, and he came to earth, and he rose again, and he's coming back on a white horse? That doesn't sound like a fairy tale. Like, we, believe, we live in a setting where that seems like almost unaccessible, um, unimaginable that we believe that. Okay, now we're moving into territory where it feels like we're cranking that up even more, where it's like almost like we're handing out Dungeons and Dragons cards in the church lobby. Like, and no offense to our dungeon masters here. I don't, I'm not trying to offend you, but it just feels weird. Okay, here's what I want to say about that. What Peter is doing is he's trying to show you that there is an evil behind evil. That yes, there's brokenness in the world. People are sinful. But behind that, there are spiritual forces. There are, there are beings that stand against goodness. And so what he's trying to say, like what Peter, or Paul says in Ephesians, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Like the person that's making you suffer, ultimately, they're a victim of an enemy. And here's what he's trying to say. That enemy lost. 
Here's what he's doing. Peter gets a little, Jesus gets a little rednecky. He jumps in his NASCAR car and he drives down to hell and he starts doing donuts in hell's parking lot. And he's like, I won, what now? Here's what happened. Uh, there's a movement of scholars, some of it's being led by uh, Tim Mackey, he's the Bible Project guy, and there's other scholars that they're very careful when they talk about Satan to not call him Satan. They call him the Satan. It's actually quite biblical. Anytime the Bible talks about Satan, there's an article in front of it. He's the Satan. The reason that these scholars are doing that is not because they don't want you to believe that Satan is real, but um, because Satan isn't his name. It's not like his name's Paul or David or Doug. He's just walking around. He, he is the adversary. He's the destroyer. He doesn't stand for anything good. He stands against beauty, love, wholeness. He stands against. That is his identity. That is what he does. He breeds chaos. It's not like there's this guy named Satan or Lucifer who's like, oh, hey, God, uh, I have some ideas for how you could run this universe. If you ever get around to me, I'd like to try it. And God's like, no. Satan is pure evil. He is an embodiment of, he just hates all that's good. Genesis 6. What happens in Genesis 6? Spiritual beings rebel against God and they try to break his creation. There's a lot of mystery about what happens in Genesis 6, but we know they broke it somehow. And so God, in an act of mercy, floods the earth to stop what these evil spiritual beings are doing. I know, it's hard to believe. But Peter's letting us see behind the curtains, and here's what he's saying. Jesus went and told that to them, and then he says this. Now he's gone up to heaven at God's right hands with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. There are things that go bump in the night. They lost. Game over. You're suffering. People are making you hurt. They ultimately are on a losing side. They have lost. And Jesus stands. Not a savior who's like fumbling to the finish line. But he stands and says, I will get you through this. And what that does is that helps you look forward to a future. A future is coming where there is no more suffering. Anything, anyone that will make you suffer has lost. He comes to you in grace, he rescues you, and he wins a battle you could never win. This passage is an invitation to abide with him. With a God who says, you're not alone in your suffering, I experience it too. Your suffering is not meaningless. Look what my suffering did. Those are linked together. I'm not going to abandon you in this suffering. I even gave you a symbol that American Protestants one day will just spin in all kinds of different directions and not know what to do, but it's a symbol that you know you can have a clear conscience. And I'm also promising you a future. That's what this book is all about. 1 Peter 1.13, it's the thesis statement of the whole book. Peter says this, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying this, Don't work harder. Don't try more. Believe this message. This is the gospel. I, I have nothing else to offer. I can't tell you. If you're suffering, I can't tell you. Here's these six hacks. Try this. That'll make the pain go away. I have no idea how to suffer. I'm not a great sufferer. Ask my wife. When I've, the little encountering I've had with suffering, I didn't nail it. 
I totally, it just totally threw me for a loop. I don't have to nail it. I have a Savior who meets me where I am and walks with me from fear, from chaos, to hope. So where do we go from here? I just have three things, three takeaways I want to give you to try to apply this week. The first one, you've heard me say it. I'm going to say it again. This is not going to be the last time I say it. Don't suffer alone. Anytime Peter uses the word you in this passage, it is plural. He is assuming you are around other people. When you suffer, it's disorienting. When you suffer alone, it's super disorienting. I'm the only one this is happening to. Why me? Why? What is going on? When you're around others, you're like, oh, not alone. Don't suffer alone. Secondly, the gospel gives you a new posture as you suffer. So listen to others as they suffer. And I don't mean listen so you can help them. I mean listen so you can be helped by them. When you encounter a suffering person, that's a person who is experiencing what Jesus experienced, who is going through this brokenness and this chaos. Don't rush in to give them an answer. See what you can learn from them. That's someone to learn from. Change your posture. I'm a person who, when there's conversation and there's a lull, I'm like, I can fill this. I have a weird fact here. Don't do that with suffering people. Listen. You can learn something. And the last takeaway from this is rest. Learn to rest whether you're suffering or you're about to suffer. This, this text talks about Jesus is seated at the right hand. All the work is done. Christ died once for sin. The battle's won. You're in the chaos. Trust him. Rest. Take Boxer the horse who's telling you to work harder, work harder, and just send him out to pasture. Rest. I'll close with this, and I promise this did not come from like sermonillustrator.com. That is a thing. It's a cheesy truth, but it's so, so good. I promise this came from a wine magazine and not from a, like a give you cheesy life truth magazine. If you want to make good grapes for good wine, you know what kind of soil you need? Bad soil. You need rocky soil. You need tough soil. If you want to make wheat, you need like really rich soil with tons of nutrients in it, not wine. The best grapes come from soil that's tough, that's difficult. Wine that grows in like really good, rich soil, it's, uh, this, this author says that the grapes are fat with no character. But the reason for that is because the roots have to work harder. The roots have to work harder to get toward moisture, and so they have to prioritize things differently. They can't say, hey, we're going to have these beautiful leaves. They're like, no, all of our moisture is going to the grapes. We've got to get the grapes good. And suffering has a way, it's a disruptor. It can reprioritize your life, but he is recreating you through that suffering. You will come out the other side, good, good wine. He's faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you meet us where we are, that your word doesn't dangle hope in front of us, 
and tell us to, to chase after it, to try harder, but you come to us. Father, I pray that we would abide as a result of this passage. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel that Christ's love is at work and he's even using our suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.